0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the rush to boost Ukraine's air defences before winter, the apparent survival of a Black Sea Fleet commander believed killed in a missile strike, and interview the president of Malawi, Lazarus Chakwira, about the impact of Russia's withdrawal from the grain deal. And the evolving geopolitical perspective of the African continent.
1: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military
2: strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war.
1: Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
0: Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 27th of September, one year and 215 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, and our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest from the battlefield.
2: Hello Francis. Hi everybody. Not a huge number of, of updates today, but first I will I will point towards today's British Defence Intelligence tweet, their daily output. They're saying that um that Russia has started to use the newly formed 25th Combined Arms Army, so the sort of biggest lump of of military stuff you can get, which is generally um, three corps would make up an army, three divisions make up a corps, three brigades make up a division. Basically, this is a, a big old lump of of people and guns. So you're talking probably, um, yeah, 50 or 60 thousand. They would try to it largely came from the the conscripted folk and and the uh, and those that that were mobilised in the last year. So on paper, they would have the numbers and, and say it's a combined arms army, but it would be nothing like what it should be. Anyway, defence intelligence, British defence intelligence, are saying that that Russia has rarely had a force of that size uncommitted, i.e. not in battle somewhere. As we've said before, you, you need to have something up your sleeve at every level to plug a gap if the enemy break through or to exploit a success somewhere. And they've rarely had that... Um, this amount of resource, battle-winning resource, combat power, to throw into a problem or throw against an opportunity. They seem to have generated it in numbers on paper, if nothing else. However, MOD, British MOD, are saying that, that from that combined arms army, the 67th Motor Rifle Division and the 164 Separate Motor Rifle Brigade don't worry too much about the terms, but the, the, that probably equates to at, f- at least fifteen thousand people. They're being fi- they are fighting separately up in the northeast around Kremina and up in the sort of up on the the northeast flank up towards well the Luhansk Oblast and up near in the sort of Kharkiv region. Now the, the important point there is that that if they are starting to take chunks out of that combined arms army and use them piecemeal to to gaps it seems to be then they are diluting the potential for what it could be so individually they may be very capable formations the 67th motor rifle division 164 separate motor rifle brigade but they're just the more you dilute it you just lack the um it's the it's the opposite of the the total being the sum of the parts you know it's it's the real punch is there if you use it as its coherent force as it should be now of course a coherent force will have trained together for years and all the units would know how each other operate and so on and so forth so that's probably not happened anyway so there's no suggestion that this new 25th combined arms army would be an absolutely kick-ass kind of military formation on the ground but it's still not a good thing to start taking chunks out of it to use here and oh i use a little bit over there and oh i use a little bit over there because suddenly you haven't got a combined arms army anymore you've just got a few little lumps and bumps that you can use piecemeal so one one to watch and it will be interesting to see how forces of this size as i say largely come from mobilized and conscripted people actually conduct themselves on the battlefield and whether they are they are worth the title of a motor rifle division a motor rifle brigade a combined arms army or actually if these are just fantasy fleets but we we shall see now separately from that Ukrainian officials say they have evacuated all children from several towns and villages around the contact line, the front line in the southern Zaporizhia region. So Yevgen Mironenko, who's the deputy head of the region, said, we have fulfilled the task set by the Ukrainian government and evacuated all children and their families from five settlements near the front lines. This is highly likely in advance of of military activity. So we saw it in Hezon, we've seen it elsewhere. It's a sensible thing to do. It, uh, It could Pressage activity in the area, Ukrainian activity, maybe. I mean, it's obviously held by Ukraine at the moment, but they would anticipate some Russian fire coming the other way if those areas are being used for for another another avenue of uh, of advance. Uh, so we need to keep our eyes on there in the southern Zaporizhia region. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, it could be a huge, great deception and counter double bluff, but actually getting civilians, getting kids out of harm's way, not a bad thing in and of itself. Local media citing regional officials say 59 children have been moved in that first wave. Now elsewhere, there seems to be, let's go up to the northeast around Kremina, so we're about 50 k's north of Bakhmut now, seems to be some uh, Russian tactical advances in that area. That, however, seems to be balanced by similar size Ukrainian advances south of Bakhmut. So that that area that we've been focusing on the south, but let's not lose sight of what's happening in the northeast and, and elsewhere there's there's an awful lot of violence up and down the whole line of contact but bakhmut is now increasingly looking like a, a salient i a, a big wedge a, a lump of land that's in in bakhmut in the terms of, in case of bakhmut it's, that's held by russia at the moment but it's, it is increasingly becoming isolated surrounded by ukrainian held territory as ukraine advances particularly to the south so that salient there that little wedge the v-shaped wedge if you like sort of mirrors the salient in the southwest where ukraine are having the most success at the moment so that pressure that's going to be put on bakhmut if they're able to be bypassed from the north and the south by ukraine then it makes absolutely no tactical or operational sense whatsoever for russia to stay there however they probably will because of the symbolic importance of bakhmut given what they they sacrificed last year however um i mean i don't know which way ukraine would want it to be actually if they if they bypass it and then russia sensibly withdraw, you know, and move back 5 6 10k or whatever to better defended positions. I mean that's a that's a big win for ukraine because they they get the territory back. However, if russia choose to stay and fight then they're going to lose an awful lot of people and a bypassed force as long as you can keep it under control then it it's not doing a huge amount of damage and you're essentially back to a kind of medieval siege type situation. So I think as long as the momentum continues there from the north, but in particular from the south, on the high ground to the south of Bakhmut, I think Ukraine would be would be content with how that situation is developing. Now, two more things. We talked about Viktor Sokolov yesterday, the Black Sea Fleet commander. He had originally, Ukrainian authorities had said that he was killed in that strike the other day, The um, what we think is a, a, a storm shadow or scalp. It's the same missile. It's called storm shadow in, by Britain and scalp by the, uh, France. It's an Anglo-French developed weapon. But We think it was Storm Shadow that hit the Black Sea Fleet headquarters the other day. Viktor Sokolov was reported to have been killed. However, he then popped up on television yesterday in a Russian defence ministry kind of meeting. Didn't say a lot. In fact, he said nothing. Didn't look brilliantly happy, but then these guys generally don't. And he seems to be sort of propped up. It could be a chair. It could be a bed. We don't know. But look, the um, suggestion that he was killed needs to be revised, it would be very. Other videos have emerged of him talking about the Black Sea Fleet, but we don't know the don't know the dates of when these things happened. I mean, it'd be very simple for him to talk about the strike. That would be a way of of us knowing that the recording had happened um, in the last couple of days. But you know, he hasn't hasn't said that yet. Actually, you know what? It's not that important. If you're arguing about has the Black Sea Fleet commander been killed in that massive strike the other day, or is he only injured, or is he not injured at all? That's fairly immaterial. We, the place has been wiped out, and. Um, you know, it's not it's not a great look for for Russia to be arguing about whether or not he was killed. And then finally, uh, let's go to the Kirsch Bridge. So vehicle traffic. I'm talking cars, not trains, because of course there there are two bridges. One one can take vehicles, motor vehicles. The other can take can take trains. But the cars, the traffic was briefly suspended this morning. Russian authorities are saying on, on Telegram that, that they've paused it briefly. This is a measure that's often taken due to drone or missile attacks by Ukraine. The bridge seems to have been reopened shortly afterwards and authorities say no no traffic jams in either direction. So we don't know if anything would happen there. Clearly nothing, nothing catastrophic had happened to the bridge. Um, but we will keep an eye on that. And that's, uh, that's it for now, Francis.
0: Thanks, Dom. Yes, let me turn now to the political sphere then. One of the major takeaways from the UN last week was the continued importance of the grain deal, either its restoration after Russia pulled out, or for alternative routes to be found that alleviate the consequences of it. Now I lead with this today because the implications of this are especially significant in Africa of course, and today's episode features an interview I did with the President of Malawi where we start by discussing that very subject. But the grain deal matters to European countries too, both for their own economies and for food prices for consumers. It's been a while since we've had a proper update, since Putin and Turkish President Erdogan sat down and ignited talks several weeks ago. Well, we have had a brief update over the past few days in that the Russian Foreign Minister, Lavrov, has said, and I quote, they, the West, directly said, We would ease sanctions to help facilitate the export of Russian fertilizer and grain. It turns out the Secretary General will be implementing sanctions, but at the same time, to find certain approaches to ensure that the West is merciful. He then goes on to say that the latest proposals by the UN to revive the grain deal, as well as the proposed Ukraine peace plan, are not workable. He said, We don't reject them, they are simply not realistic. It is not possible to implement this. It's not realistic, and everybody understands this. But at the same time, they say this is the basis for negotiations. And as you can tell, those were non-scripted remarks. This ongoing saga offers valuable diplomatic leverage for Russia, with the added benefit of it driving a wedge between Kiev's allies, not least countries like Poland, who have extended, of course, a ban on grain imports from Ukraine so as to not have consequences on their own food markets. We hear today that, according to the Polish agriculture minister, talks with Ukraine about the grain imports are going in a good direction, their phrase, but nothing more concrete than that. Now, staying in Europe, Germany has welcomed a decision by Switzerland to open the way to sell back some of its German-made Leopard 2 tanks to help rebuild stocks depleted by aid to Ukraine. Now, listeners will recall, Germany asked Switzerland back in February, I think it was, to sell back some of the 96 Leopard 2 tanks it has in storage to manufacture at Rheinmetall AG. But this is easier said than done due to Switzerland's neutrality laws. It matters what said tanks might then be used for and whether they might be sent to Ukraine, for instance. And there were some discussions about whether... On this war, Switzerland might be willing to alleviate some of its neutrality laws, given the egregious attack that's taken place. Those conversations have been toned down somewhat, but clearly they are finding ways around this so that tanks are able to be going back to countries like Germany. So, as I say, to comply with Swiss neutrality laws, Berlin has assured Bern that the weapons would not go to Kiev but remain in Germany or with a NATO or European Union ally. And the German ambassador has said, and I quote, we are very happy and grateful for this decision. We need these tanks. They will fill gaps with us and our European partners. So it sounds, therefore, that these tanks are specifically for Germany's own deterrence, whereas other tanks it has available or are seeking to buy back from elsewhere might indeed be sent to Ukraine. Germany, of course, remains the highest donor of military equipment to Kyiv after the United States. Now, staying with politics, I spoke yesterday about the frankly embarrassing situation in Canada, where the Speaker of the country's House of Commons, seemingly in ignorance, publicly praised a former Ukrainian volunteer in the SS during World War II in the Parliament. Now, I was saying then it's, it's really blotted President Plensky's visit to the country that was designed to thank Canada for its support and has had far-reaching consequences in the last 48 hours or so. Well, I mention this again because said Speaker Anthony Rota has now resigned following the incident. He's told lawmakers he made a mistake by inviting the ex-soldier to attend the session last Friday and has issued a statement where he says, again, I quote, that public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, and I accept full responsibility for my actions. Now, it is a deeply unfortunate incident, not least because of the substantial support that Canada has offered to Ukraine, which was supposed to be celebrated by this visit, but also due to the damage it's done to the information war being waged by Ukraine and by the wider West the episode plays into the narrative promoted by Putin that he sent his army into Ukraine last year to demilitarize and denazify the country a charge of course that Kiev and Western allies say is baseless. And on that subject, Elon Musk's ex, of course, formerly known as Twitter, has been cited as one of the biggest outlets for Russian disinformation. As the EU has now urged social media platforms to step up vigilance to combat Russia's war of ideas, such as propagating the idea that Ukraine is in some way a Nazi sympathizing state. So the European Commission Vice President has urged Twitter, or X as it's now known, to take action ahead of national and European elections over the next year. I'll quote from her. This is a multi-million euro weapon of mass manipulation, aimed both internally at the Russians as well as Europeans and the rest of the world. The very large platforms must address this risk, especially that we have to expect that the Kremlin and others will be active before our European elections. Now for context, the EU has released numerous reports on how major tech companies including Facebook, Google, TikTok are faring in the battle against disinformation. Most of the major platforms agreed to work with the bloc on a voluntary code of conduct, which aims to set industry standards for fact-checking and other measures. But X is not part of that and As a consequence, this is why I think they are given a particular attention by the EU spokesperson. They said that X, which is not under the code anymore, is the platform with the largest ratio of misinformation or disinformation posts. Our pilot also showed that disinformation actors were found to have significantly more followers than their non-disinformation counterparts and tend to have joined the platform more recently than non-disinformation users. Now, she noted several steps taken by platforms to combat Russian influence. Google has told the bloc that it terminated more than 400 channels involved in Russian influence operations in the first four months of the year. Meta, which operates Facebook, said it expanded fact-checking partnerships in 22 languages in the EU. Interestingly, she also said that Russian digital information was particularly acute in Slovakia, which holds elections on Saturday, as I was talking about yesterday. So she says Slovakia has been chosen as the country where there is fertile ground for success of the Russian pro-Kremlin, pro-war narratives. The election this week will be a test case because the approach to Russian war in Ukraine is a divisive line. So this is a hugely important issue, which gets to the very heart of free societies, really. To what extent should one censor or contextualize speech, especially if that speech is deemed harmful to the body politic where do you draw the line now it's a big can of worms to open today but i'll stress again that russian propaganda deliberately operates in a way that is devoid of all factual basis and not just through proxies yesterday following the incident in canada their embassy put a tweet out saying that ukraine offers stamps to which has the face of the veteran that was involved in this incident even going as far as mocking up an image of this supposed stamp. This has very real world consequences. Someone I know who's not closely following the war asked me yesterday in passing, quite seriously, does Ukraine have a Nazi problem? Now, the upcoming US elections will also be a core target for Russian information warfare. The stakes couldn't be higher. So I think it is vital that this is discussed now and solutions are found if one is... Possible before the consequences are potentially extrapolated. But many people are asking this morning, what if Elon Musk chooses not to comply? What can be done? And the answer seems to be not really that much, but it has major implications. So that's where we are in the political space. Great now to join Joe Barnes. Joe, it's good to have you back on. You've written a big story in today's paper about the rush to boost Ukraine's air defence as Russia prepares to unleash stockpiled missiles. You've been talking to several of your sources for this story. What have they been telling you?
1: Yeah, hi, folks. So we often report on what we call the Ramstein meetings, to give it its full name, the Ukraine Contact Group, which is a, a group of around 50 or so countries, up to 54 countries in total, that are organised by the US to basically coordinate military donations to Kyiv but what is sort of like very rare from these discussions is actually what happens within them what is the thought process when say the uk and us are going what do we need to give ukraine next what are the priorities we very rarely hear that we often hear demands from ukraine or requests um, for the four a's as they've become known ammunition artillery air defense and armor that's basically what's on the table at any one time but so what after a discussion i've had with a senior us official is that basically it's able to give me and everyone else a glance about what people think of ukraine's counteroffensive and how the west is switching ahead of the winter months and so at the last ramstein meeting a few weeks ago it became clear that western governments have now placed air defense systems at the top of their priority list for future donations to ukraine this is because russia by all accounts in western intelligence ukrainian intelligence and things we can actually see in the public domain is going to conduct another winter of strikes against critical infrastructure so energy and heating infrastructure basically to freeze and starve ukrainians so the shift was pushed by lloyd austin the u.s defense secretary at the recent uh, meeting and this u.s official told me air defense air defense air defense that is going to be the key focus for all allies that are providing security assistance. And the source went on to add, Russia are big fans of starving and freezing Ukrainians to death. So British military intelligence believes Russia is stockpiling in preparation for a systematic campaign. And that would lead to the suggestion why the West are sort of pivoting away from donations that could help the counteroffensive. So artillery ammunition, so the 155mm shells potentially new tanks, new armoured vehicles, new landmine clearing equipment, because they think, essentially, when the rains come, the winter months come, Ukraine's counter-offensive is going to be bogged down and the war is going to enter a new phase of, of, can Ukraine survive a long-range campaign? So, and then my source went on to say, they, as in Ukraine, are thinking long and hard about how to use the capabilities they have, but we do want to try and move more air defence into Ukraine in the weeks and months ahead. So Budinov, um, the uh, major general in charge of Ukraine's uh, military intelligence agency, has recently warned that he was braced for another attempt by Moscow to plunge the country into cold and dark as the temperatures drop. He said that his agency were looking at a deterrence and retaliation strategy to counter that uh, sort of attack which Western leaders have always described as war crimes. Kiev has accused Moscow of a campaign of energy terror. So last winter, for instance, half of Ukraine's energy system was damaged, which at times left millions without heating and electricity, which from my sort of reporting in the country last November, you could really tell that was starting to weigh on people's minds. There were secretive plans to evacuate Kiev in case of that failing, the infrastructure failing. So it's a real big issue. Um, And last week, Ukraine's uh, power grid operator announced the first mass strikes on energy infrastructure in nearly six months. So that basically is the start of the campaign that we're expecting. The argument here is not that Western officials doubt Ukraine's ability to go forward and go ahead with the counteroffensive, even in the winter months. It's actually they now believe that Ukraine has almost stretched its... Uh, air defense capabilities, um, because it's forced to protect not only cities from sort of these attacks, not only power plants, not only sort of the, in- the interconnectors, the power cables and transformers. It's also had to now think about grain shipment infrastructure. We've noted and reported extensively on the strikes, whether they be on the Danube or in Odessa. And then we've also got Ukraine has a wider sort of front line is- to defend as well with air defense equipment. So that is why the West is now saying, look, you know what, we need to change change our sort of aim and get as much of this stuff as we can in. What's interesting is that lots of countries have said, look, we can't give you any air defence systems. We don't have enough to protect ourselves. But suddenly a lot of people are coming forward and saying, look, we've got more to give. We've managed to look. We can dig a bit deeper. We can help out. So hopefully this is going to end in Ukraine being able to add to its already complex air defence network, which consists of old Soviet era tech uh, and then the more sort of Western high tech uh, units, batteries, as we like to call them, such as the Patriot system or whether it be the German IRST, the, the Italian French uh, Samp-T system. So, yeah, that's one thing I think we're going to look forward to in the next weeks and months, as my source told me, and I'll stop there.
0: Thank you, Joe. Very comprehensive. And one wonders whether the, another of the reasons that these defensive weapons might be being given is that politically they're much easier to give at this moment in time than more offensive weapons. And of course, we've been covering that debate uh, on the podcast for some time. But Dom, I know you've got some questions for Joe.
2: Yeah, hi Joe. Great to speak to you again, mate. Hope oh, all's well over there. Got a couple of questions. Firstly, um the mood in Brussels, if I may. What how did the last week's stuff in UN in the UN go down over there? And in particular, this idea about UN reform, UN Security Council reform, what have you. What's the temperature in Brussels on that front?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, Dom. I can't offer you too much on it, but people do agree with sort of the Joe Biden's outlook that you reported on that there needs to be some level of reform. There's lots of countries here in the EU that aren't sort of members of the permanent security council but have very large heft you have to look at Poland as promised to overhaul its its military and become one of the leading militaries in Europe and there's just, there's just lots more concern you've you've got people who are a lot more sort of russian hawkish now so they're going to be more sceptical about what Russia is trying to do at the United Nations, What is how is it trying to canvas its allies and, and such. So, yep, there will be um, sort of discussions ongoing about this idea of reform and how to sort of whittle away at Russia's influence in the system. But also I think it goes back to how, what you always say, Dom, and you question the relevance or the the standing of the UN. I think a lot of people, have they see it as an important Place for uh, democracy but you only have to look at sort of the lack of people that went across to the meeting there was no sort of rishi sunak didn't go he sent his deputy prime minister oliver dowden so it's just um is the un going to be the most important thing going forward
2: well yeah answers on a postcard folks very good i mean that's the question right now and just one more for me joe i note today that um Avika Celinea, who's the the prime minister of Latvia, is with Jens Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO, and she's uh, she was praising. We talking about Canada earlier on. She's praising Canada. Canada ha- leads NATO's enhanced forward presence mission in Latvia, i.e., a big old big battle group. So Britain leads in um, in Estonia, the US are in Poland, Germany, I think Lithuania. Anyway, the Canadians are in are in Latvia. So the the PM there is, is being very clear and very very bold in her in her support for ukraine saying she's saying after ukraine's victory we must welcome ukraine into nato to guarantee the long-term peace in europe i just wonder if you could give us a again that if you have the if you're taking the temperature in around uh, brussels and in nato in particular about the view of ukrainian membership of nato after victory and just generally the the sort of um this idea that the power in europe both in the eu and nato is moving north and east whether or not that still is that just a kind of a glib argument or do you think that's got any foundation
1: yeah so um no it's an interesting one and i what i have observed over sort of the last well even even before the full scale invasion there was a the eastern sort of countries have have gained a lot more not power yeah well let's call it power they're, they're listened to a lot more but as i always say this kind of example about poland they were once seen as sort of an outcast euro skeptic member of the european union now they're one of the most influential. Hardline member states, when it comes to influencing policy on arms donations, on uh, EU sanctions, they were very outspoken in the attempt to get Ukraine into NATO and have stronger language in terms of membership, which is interesting. So, on the NATO membership, I think we're frozen in time a little bit. One thing that everyone could agree on, and mainly because it's written into sort of NATO's founding treaties in North Atlantic. Uh, treaty that a country with a sort of border dispute or a war ongoing in it is very difficult to admit. So they're waiting for the outcome of the um of the war essentially. What I would say on that though is there has been a lot more renewed focus on the G7 agreement that we reported on and was struck at the NATO summit in Vilnius. So this idea about security guarantors, and I think there's now nearly 30 countries that have come forward and said we want to offer unilateral security guarantees to Ukraine. Again, there's not many details in the public. It's one of the questions I'm asking people a lot, and hopefully I've got a few meetings next week scheduled so we can dive in to see what other people are offering. But I think President Zelensky and Joe Biden offered a glimpse of what the US are going to offer. They were talking about the joint production of air defence equipment. And I think that's what's going to happen is there is going to be lots of countries are suddenly going to offer the licenses to produce, whether it be artillery systems, whether it be air defense systems, maybe even tanks inside Ukraine. We've, we've got this, the uh, BA systems deal to suddenly start producing weapons inside Ukraine. That's possibly part of what Britain is going to offer. So that's where the, that's where the dial is. But I think very much that the conversations are alive about getting Ukraine into NATO, and especially the EU. There's there's a meeting today in Spain amongst European affairs ministers, and, and they're talking about how can we reform the EU to essentially enlarge it to something from 27 members currently up to 35, including Ukraine. You've got active discussions from the likes of the French and the Germans who are questioning, would our original power base be sucked up and transported somewhere else if suddenly you have ukraine poland the baltic nations all able to really influence and create mini power blocks that control eu voting so that's one thing that we should probably come back and maybe uh, i'm traveling to the european political community summit early next month in granada and on the sidelines there is going to be an eu 27 discussion on ukraine's membership bid so i'll be able to give you more on that but I think it's it's really fascinating to watch the development of how Ukraine and this conflict has transformed the EU and there's there's lots lots to be said and there's actually lots of change that's undergone and lots of, that Britain has supported off in a sense in essence at the moment.
0: Well thank you very much Joe. Just one final question before we turn to our final thoughts and that is about the upcoming Slovakian elections this week or this weekend specifically. Just wondering what your reflections are on that. So I was talking yesterday about its potential significance and the ramifications. Do you sense nervousness in Brussels?
1: Yes, is the answer. While lots of people don't often refer directly to these election systems and like how, how it works domestic until the results have come out, but lots of people are speaking about how do we start... So, to reverse back... The EU has a voting system on foreign affairs issues, so basically whether it be finance for weapons to Ukraine or sanctions on Russia, they have to have the entire backing of 27 nations. So everything they do is always carefully coordinated to basically include concessions, compromises, and at most on most occasions fudges to get the support of every nation. They've, at the moment... They've got fears that Poland is going to block a big multi-billion euro fund to, for basically future weapons donations to Ukraine because it said it doesn't want to donate weapons to Ukraine at the moment. Hungary has publicly opposed sanctions from the get-go and now with Slovakia potentially having a pro-Kremlin sort of stooge politician as their leader that's only going to add more sort of problems when it comes to EU decision making and they're going to struggle to find that sort of agreement in 27 when they next try to do a sanctions package when they next try to find more cash to give to member states supplying Ukraine with weapons so it's only going to add to those problems and conversations about those problems have become more prominent in the weeks that it looks like this chap is going to win in Slovakia
0: Well, thank you, Joe. It's going to be interesting, I think, talking about this further next week once we see the result. Time for our final thoughts now. Dom Nichols, can you go first?
2: Thanks. I mean, I'm very tempted as a final thought to ask Joe how the EU suggests it can. Uh, it, it's not a big gravy train and loves its junkets if it's going off for a conference in Grenada in the Caribbean. Anyway, that's not my final thought. But Joe, very welcome to answer if you if you if you know the answer to that. I would like to point to. Tomorrow's Defence in Depth, so the weekly video that we put out, ten minute video ish on YouTube and on our on our website, it comes out tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to look at operational art. Now I spoke yesterday. We spoke yesterday with um, retired General Sir Richard Shiref, uh British General, former Deputy um, Supreme Allied Commander Europe. I asked him all about operational art. Um, I was basically sort of you know getting him to do my homework. To, to be perfectly honest, you know, you think I throw these things together, but you know, I was getting him on so I could then crib, crib the transcript. But basically, the point I'm point I'm trying to make in the in the video tomorrow is that we are looking at a whole number of things happening in Ukraine and Russia. We've got the Southwest Offensive, we've got back the South Bakhmut, we've got activity in the Black Sea, we've got all this partisan or irregular activity in the occupied territories and inside Russia, drones over Moscow, so on and so forth. And they might, on the face of it, look random and there's a criticism that oh, the the offensive is failing, it's been going since June, and nothing's happening. My suggestion is that that is just one aspect of the war, and there are various different lines of operation which might be conventional on the ground or conventional at sea or air defense or what have you and As long as all these lines are pointing in the same direction and are aimed at a recognized end state about how, how this is how this is going to end, then that's fine and and operational art is about keeping all these forces in balance and making sure that no one gets too far ahead and it all gets out of balance. And I just wonder if we're looking at different activities on these lines at at different times and the the ability we have now with with media, especially social media, to, to really dial down and view in great detail some very, very, very tactical actions. I wonder if that skewed our understanding of the war. And I think we are staring at little bits and pieces through a drinking straw we see. A Russian tank getting blown up, or or a or a um, a Marder today, a German Marder vehicle in service with Ukrainian forces that's bl- that's blown up, and we go, oh my god, that's it, it's all over. And actually, we're looking at really small, tiny tactical details. And I think what we need to do is is take a step back and try and see if there is a coherent plan here, various different lines of operations all aiming towards the end state, and if actually it's very easy to get wrapped up in in judging this to be a, a, an incoherent and disjointed act, military activity that's going on, or say, oh, that Ukraine is just firing anti-ship missiles at the Black Sea Fleet to, to try and get a good headline because it's not going well in the South. And actually, maybe it's completely wrong, and maybe there is a level of operational art being applied here, and these are all on different lines of activity, all pointing in the same direction. You know, I just put these ideas out there for you to judge yourself, but that will be out on YouTube at 1800 6pm London time tomorrow and then I think on our website the day after that but uh, yeah we discuss operational art that would be my my final thought. Thanks very much Dom. Joe Barnes.
1: Yeah um, I want to go back to this the curious case of Sokolov and whether he has died or not. The videos despite not including times I think there was some time stamps in Russian in the Meeting videos yesterday, but I just want to like the art of sort of intelligence and how hard it is for even the Ukrainian intelligence sphere to come up with the correct answers, especially when they are so close to the action. They've they've no doubt got assets in inside Crimea, maybe in, even in, in inside inside the uh, Black Sea fleets, sort of command structures or low level people, as reports would suggest, and it. If they can get things wrong, it shouldn't be seen as a criticism. It, mistakes happen. It's it's just inc- shows the incredible difficulty it is to actually report entirely accurately and potentially not get burnt once or twice while trying to cover this conflict on whether, a, say, a, had a Challenger 2 tank being destroyed or not, had a bit of Western kit being destroyed or not. What was the impact of that? Was it completely destroyed or was it towed away and repaired? We're, at times, we have to make judgments to our best of our ability and sometimes we do get it wrong but even sort of the highly thought of ukrainian intelligence system can get it wrong at times and i wouldn't be too
0: critical about that well thank you very much joe thank you don for your time today
2: thanks everybody and it turns out i got the wrong granada i was talking about the caribbean but it's actually in
0: spain sorry eu For many months, the vital geopolitical role played by African nations has come into sharper focus as Russia, China and Western nations vie for the support of their respective courses from the continent. But rarely is one able to talk to someone directly at the top table of those discussions and to hear about the concerns of those nations. At the UN General Assembly last week, I sat down with President Lazarus Chakwira, the president of Malawi since June 2020, to discuss the issues at the forefront of his mind. We began with one of the core ways the war has impacted Africa, the grain deal. Thank you very much for your time, Mr President. This is a extraordinary moment for Africa at the moment in the context of the UN and the grain deal. There's been a lot of discussion following Russia's Russia's withdrawal from that. Just wondered what your perspective is at the moment, at the current stage of that being renegotiated.
3: Well, we need to renegotiate this. First of all, the war in Eastern Europe has not helped anyone in the world. Rather, the aftermath of it or what is going on as consequence of such is that even supply chains have been affected everywhere and prices of fertilizers that are used in food production have been affected and the prices of food itself have been affected because these are grain growing countries that would supply grain all over the world. And then with food prices and fertilizer prices, as well as fuel prices going up, it has made life extremely difficult for everyone. And so Malawi believes in peace. We believe in dialogue, in contact. We believe in sitting down and discussing issues because the premium on human life is way too much to pay. And so even as we feel like the grain deal needs to be revisited and needs to be redone rather than to have the status quo, it's important to realize the root causes of all of this and be done with that so that we should not continue to see lives lost children and women, particularly, who really become the people that most suffer when such things happen. As far as Africa is concerned, we would love, and I think our leaders on the continent have so expressed, that's why they try and efforts to mediate, but they are also trying to say, let the full deal be redone.
0: And are you optimistic that it will be redone?
3: I believe so. I believe in the uh, highest human good, that in the end, what will it profit anyone should more and more people continue to suffer, more and more people continue to die, and more and more destruction is effected? I believe that sense should prevail at the end of the day. That's what I pray for, at least.
0: And what other issues are, particularly in your mind, coming to New York for the UN this week?
3: You know, I just spoke earlier today, and when you're talking about building trust, when you're talking about solidarity uh, issues, when you're talking about prospering together, these are hope-given sentiments, but they should not be on paper. And so I have expressed my mind that, for example, those who serve on the Security Council, everybody else gets here and there's just one of them. Now, how is that helping building trust? And when you're talking about solidarity, there are those who sometimes act in such a way that while we want the whole world to be in solidarity because we have common goals. For example, the SDGs. Why would there be questions as to why are you in solidarity with this and not with that? Because we all need to be together. When you're talking about prosperity for everyone, why would, for example, Africa's resources be exploited and make sure Africa remains poor When everybody's getting rich out of those resources, those are the issues I raise.
0: (laughs) There have been a lot of criticisms made of the UN recently, particularly the UN Security Council. Would you be in favor of seeing it expanded and not just have the five permanent members? In In fact, I
3: also made mention of that. I was in agreement with President Joe Biden when he said uh, we should have that. The reform that Africa has been calling for, and it's not just starting with us, it started with others who have since even died, calling for reforms, reforms. When the UN started, first as a League of Nations and then morphed into the United Nations, most of nations in Africa had not even become independent. Now, these as well as others worldwide who had been colonized and have since become independent. You mean to tell me they shouldn't even have a right to come at the table and determine issues concerning them? Sometimes we say nothing for us without us. So if we all want to be a family of nations, democratic family of nations, then let Africa be represented. by the way, It's 1.4 billion people, and you still want to regard them as those you can just tell. Now, let them be part of the story, because once you sit around the table together and you make decisions together, then you can prosper together.
0: Do you think Africa is respected at the UN
3: as a bloc, as a geopolitical entity? Well, I don't know, I, I, I'm, too, I'm too young uh, to determine whether they are respected. But uh, if you have leaders that speak up and say, we need these reforms, like President Biden said, then you know that they are respecting something.
0: There's been a recent string of military coups in Africa, it's caused a lot of concern and I think surprise. What's your perspective on that?
3: It, it, it's a concern. Yeah. I expressed the same concern right here, a side meeting on democracy delivers And I said, I, I'm speaking here with a little bit of trepidation and consternation. And the reason is, these unconstitutional changes of government, particularly on my continent, and particularly on the western part of my country, is something that we need to look at and not just kind of brush off and say, we don't want this and we will give you this sanction and stuff like that. Why? Why is the frequency? Why are Africans being disenchanted? And sometimes then you realize that some of the root causes are fights within and fights without. And who controls the resources. And the poor people who've been poor so long, who have nothing to lose, begin to take the law in their own hands because they say, if this is not working, let's try something else that could work for us. We must address these things. We must address economic exploitation. You know, we talked about being independent or getting out of slavery, getting out of colonization colonialism and getting out of that. But with that economic emancipation, even the rich of the rich will still not be able to enjoy it when the rest are so poor, you know, unless you, you, you don't have a conscience. Uh, I still remember growing up, you know, in those days. Just got into college and I read a book. It was Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. That was way back. But today it's worse. Rich nations in an age of hunger. And we're putting money in things that are more destructive instead of putting money in things that can change lives.
0: Africa's gone through a lot of changes. You talk about economics there. Can you just tell me a little bit about the transformations that Malawi economy has has undergone in recent years?
3: First of all, we have a vision. We launched a couple of years ago, Malawi 2063. That vision is one that says we want to become an inclusively wealthy, self-reliant, industrialized upper-middle-income country or economy. And then uh, 2063, you may say why, but that's when we turned 100 since independence. But we're saying Africa has also agenda 2063. and So uh, with the Africa, we want to partner with that. But at the UN, we have this agenda up to 2030, Sustainable Development Goals. So our first 10-year implementation plan of our vision has incorporated that so that we are able to move along with other nations. And we said, okay, now that we have had COVID, uh, which pushed us back, we have these shocks that have pushed us back. We have uh, had this continued war in Eastern Europe that is pushing us back. And uh, we have so much... Debt and sustainable debt, which is like a millstone hung round our necks, debilitating. These are structurally obligations. Now, when you have a country like Malaya with a small fiscal and you have collected your taxes and in your budget, you say, we want to do this, we want to do this, but there's no money for it. Because everything you're collecting, you're having to pay back. Loans that have matured and/or interest on it. Then, poor nations, the least developed countries, we used to chair that until this year, forty-six least developed countries, and they are shackled by unsustainable debt. These are the things that do not augur well for real development, because all we're doing is maintain a little bit of life, and you can check and say, okay, they're still breathing, so they're not dead yet. But we we need to be vibrant. We need to go on. So we embarked on a, a, a rigorous reform program. Our financial management issues said we must digitalize, so we cut out on time spent on doing some things and cut out on corrupt, practices. Sometimes which thrive in the dark, you know, and we do this, we do that. These things are now bearing fruit, beginning to bear fruit. And uh, while I've been here, they, I may have just okayed this stuff, left agreement uh, to say, now we can go on this. Now, that will give other players room to come in and help Malawi in a way that is more meaningful. And then we can rebuild Because that country has been ravaged. And like uh, they used to do in those old days uh, with the Marshall Plan, that's what we need. And that's why at this conference, uh, this UN General Assembly, I had uh, a side meeting, uh, Malawi Partners Conference. And I outlined all of these things to say we need more than just that which will keep us barely alive.
0: The Marshall Plan came from... (laughs) government funding from you know given by allied powers a lot of talk now is that any future Marshall Plan whether it be in Europe in Africa will be private investment do you welcome that
3: or do you have concerns I I think it should be both Mm -hmm. rather than either or it should be both and in fact that's what I was calling for both investment as well as needed support from our development partners the Commonwealth
0: has also gone through a lot of changes in recent years. What do you take? What, what's your takeaway from those transformations? Do you think they are positive?
3: <laughs> I think so. I, I think any wind of change you know, begins to bring with it a new perspective. We have seen, for example, over the years, countries that have not even been under the British Empire joining the Commonwealth which is a positive thing because a new perspective was brought in. And then we have seen sectors general from um, all over the world, uh, you know. So, hey, this is a global village now. It's not a matter of saying who is bigger than who. Even in their family, your ages may be different, but you're one family.
0: <laughs> and you, you mentioned Britain there. I'm glad you did. Britain's, of course working on this trade tariff at the moment with uh, for African nations including Malawi. What's your perspective on that? so it's been a lot of conversation about it I know in Africa it's less so in Britain so perhaps you can offer a perspective on why that's such an important thing.
3: Well we have a special relationship with Britain because uh, we used to be a British protectorate and um, so if we can do more uh, trading we do but if we can you know upskill it Uh, That would be great. And I know, uh, for example, next April, they want to host this uh, UK-Africa deal. Uh, You know, rather than aid, if we emphasize trade, we are then building self-reliance because people are producing, adding value to what they produce and able to export it.
0: Trade, not aid. Um, (laughs) One final question. I sense your frustration. At certain things that are going on at the moment, but you seem by nature an optimist. So, are you optimistic about Africa and its future?
3: It, it doesn't take much to be a pessimist. And that's what many people choose to be. And I don't take that route. I am an optimist. It's the half full story, not half empty. And when you look at Africa's resources, no matter how they have been exploited, in the past, and enriched other nations. There are still discoveries. The most recent one, the largest deposit of rutile in Malawi, a country that has not been big in mining. These are prospects that give you hope. When you look at Africa's population, the youth, and their ingenuity, their creativity, their ability to innovate and find answers. And I'm, I see that at the university level. I see that at the, a primary level where you say, well, how did you come up with this? When I see that, I see hope. And so you asked me about this. I believe we have a future that we can look forward to for the sake of our children and grandchildren if we do the right things and make the right choices and the right decisions right now.
0: And is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with or anything that's on your mind that may not be on theirs?
3: Well, I'm glad uh, the Telegraph can Telegraph all my messages across the world, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I just just wish that the world and those who have the means would see the importance of what we say, a global village. The importance, uh, like UN says, of not leaving anyone behind. The importance of recognizing that we sink or swim together. Because it cannot be that you have those who've made it and those who haven't made it, and then you say we have won. We must all win. When there's a tide in the ocean, let every boat rise.
0: Thank you very much. You most
3: work.
0: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at telegraph.co.uk slash latest Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear, and executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.